How are you? Good. Two of you are good, one woke up. All right, good. <laughs> Acts chapter 2 is where we're headed. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the chairs in front of you. If you're a front row sitter, you've got to bring your own. That's kind of the deal. So if you're borrowing a Bible today, you will absolutely need it. Uh, we're going to be on page 911. So 911, uh, I looked that up so I could let you know. Um, as Pastor John said, the takeaways, great time to discuss with your family to talk to your kids, to talk to one another, and just share something you heard, something that stands up. Uh, who's back there? Ryan, can we have the lights, please? Yes, You're welcome. All right, I'm old. It's, uh, I know. I wasn't going to say that out loud, but all right. So uh, for those of us that can't see, all right, there we go. Takeaways. This is a good time to talk with your family, to talk with, your, with the people around you about what is something that God said that you want to apply to your life this week. So there we go. All right, let's uh, do this. So where we left off last week, we're in the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus ascends, right? He ascends back to heaven, showing us that his work here on earth is completed. He's done his job. He ascends back to his throne, right? And he tells the church, wait here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be my witnesses, right? So he says, wait this is a, a divine working. This isn't something you could do in your own human knowledge, intelligence, strength, wisdom, any of those things. This must be done by the Spirit. And that thing is that you will be my witnesses, right? That you will be witnesses to the living, resurrected, ascended Jesus. So that's chapter one, where we left off there. So chapter two, just as Jesus said, it happens. The church is gathered and honestly, it's 120 people gathered in a room. It looks like this, right? It, it begins with a church that looks like this. And they're gathered, and they're praying, and, and, and the Spirit falls upon them, and this miraculous thing happens that all of them inside begin to speak in such a way that all the people outside, now let's just push pause for a second, outside around a great feast in Jerusalem where all these people from different nations who speak different languages, all these things. And so they're gathered together for a feast in Jerusalem. All right, let's do that again. So inside the church, they begin to speak, and they all begin to speak in a different language unknown to them, but outside the people who speak different languages hear all of them speaking in their language. It's amazing. I'll go with that. Right? That it's empowering the church now to be witnesses, just as Jesus said. It gives them, it, it helps them overcome a barrier of speech, right? Then we saw last week, all throughout the Old Testament, God's, uh, God, the Holy Spirit, right? The third person of the Trinity. So he, the Holy Spirit, empowers people, prophets, kings, others, right? To speak on his behalf. But it's not everyone it is these selected people typically that have some form of leadership role, a king, a prophet, a priest, a judge, things like that, an elder. But the promise of the Old Testament that one day God's people will all be empowered by the Spirit to be his witnesses. And so Jesus makes that as a wait here until the Spirit comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses. Chapter 2, we see them live that out. That they begin to speak in such a way that people can hear the gospel and they respond to faith in Jesus. So here's the only note you get today. I hope you're a note taker. You take your own notes, but here's the only thing we'll put on the screen. Here's kind of a main idea. The Spirit-empowered church. What does conversion to Christianity 
and empowerment by the Holy Spirit look like as the earliest Christian converts, forgive my typo, Christian converts begin to follow Jesus? What is conversion and empowerment? What is con- I'm sorry. So what does conversion to Christianity and empowerment by the Holy Spirit look like when we see it take place in the earliest converts to following Jesus, the first century church? So at the end of last week, as all this is taking place, Peter goes out to this crowd that is drawing, and he begins to proclaim the gospel. As he preaches Jesus, men and women begin to ask, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And as we closed off last week, Thousands come to faith. About 3,000 people come to faith. So now our church is roughly 3,120 people, right? It's had this rapid growth, and they've all been filled with the Spirit. They've all been baptized. They've all been empowered to be witnesses for Jesus, that they can proclaim that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again from the dead, that he is alive today. Right? That's where we left off, right? We, I ran out of time putting my notes together last week, so I wasn't able to include this verse. We have no less time today, but we're going to get it anyhow. So Acts 2, right at the end, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And the prayers. Okay, so here's what we have. We have this roughly... 3,120 people. So we're just going to go with 3,000 because it's faster and easier. So we have about 3,000 Christians now beginning to gather together as a local church. Now they met in homes, they met in the temple, because remember, they're pretty much Jewish converts. Now, because so many of them were not from Jerusalem, a lot of them traveled back home. In fact, that's how the church in Rome was started. It began with a convert here at Pentecost who goes home to Rome and then begins to tell other people about Jesus. Okay, so whatever's left over is meeting in Jerusalem. We'll call that the Jerusalem church. They gather together. Often they go to the temple. They meet in homes. They do all these things. They're filled with God's spirit. They're being witnesses for Jesus. And here we are. And here's kind of the, if you get a snapshot, right? Kind of like an Instagram post. This is a snapshot of where I am in my life. Right here, this is a snapshot of the church. Here's what they do. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, and prayer. We see these key things that the church devotes itself to, right? Devoted, strong term. Not just what the church does when they feel like it, but they are devoted to, and the apostles' teaching is clearly the teachings that Jesus gave the men that he spent that time with that they are handing off now to the church, to fellowship. They, they become a community within a community. So though they're residents probably of Jerusalem or around the, that area, they become a community within that, right? And they break bread. I'm sure that has to do with having meals together. It also has a bit of significance in communion. So they eat together. They celebrate the sacrament of communion together. They've all just been baptized. They're gathering together. And one of the things that we have seen every week, Acts 1, Acts 2, now here, they pray, right? They gather and pray together. Not just pray at home, not just pray before bed, not just pray in the morning, but they gather together and pray. Prayer is a key piece to being 
Christians or to being a church is corporate prayer. So when we talk about Selah, Selah is a biblical term in Hebrew that just means to rest or to pause and reflect. And so one Sunday a month, the fourth Sunday, near the end of the month, we gather together, we worship a little and pray. We just have this focused time, as Pastor John said. And it's just to remind ourselves that part of what we do is we gather and we pray. So verse 43, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done. This is key. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, right? The apostles are going to do some things that not every member of the church can do. That Jesus commissioned them to do something. They're going to go out and do it, and we're going to see why as this passage unfolds. I just want you to see it here. Many signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. So what does that mean for us? Our job is to focus on what the church does and then ask questions. Okay, what is God doing through the apostles that's different, and how does it apply to us? Make sense, right? What does the church do? How do we do that? What is God doing through the apostles, and why? And how does, what does that tell us? What does that teach us, right? Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So they gathered, but they also, we see this change, they had all things in common. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds, the, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They have all things in common. We could spend a day camping out here, right? But let me just suggest this. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We've been saying that sometimes the Holy Spirit is misunderstood, and sometimes there are entire wings of churches or, or supposed churches or whatever that are kind of that have misunderstood some of this, and there are others that kind of ignored over here. And what we're asking is in Scripture, like, okay, what is it that the, that the Holy Spirit is doing? We're trying to build a robust doctrine of the Spirit. And, and sometimes, because of the flashy things, if you will, that happen, we get distracted by these things, and we miss some of the amazing and miraculous things that actually occur that the Bible is leading us towards. This is a common phrase in Acts, that they had all things in common. Here's what this is. This is a miraculous reshaping of people's lives where they're now orienting around this gospel community rather than their own individual lives. Right? Rather than their financial security for the future, they're oriented around this community. Rather, their hopes and dreams over here, they're really focusing in on this community that's centered on Jesus and the mission that Jesus has given it. So this local church is beginning to gather, and as we see it grow, we also see that they're, they're having all things in common. So they share their celebrations and struggles. They share their finances, and they care for needs. Now, it's not that they do that after setting aside their time for hobbies, right? It's not after they've got their kids' college fund all figured out, right? It's not when it's convenient they begin to contribute. Their whole lives are turned to being about something new. And so I want to just think, now let's just shrink it back down to 120. Let's just look around the room. Let's just consider this. What kind of miracle would it take to cause us to all kind of turn from our individualistic lives and turn for the cause of Christ to become all about one another. You with me? That requires a miracle, right? That is a miraculous reshaping of God's people. And this doesn't happen when there's just 120 of them that have a lot in common. This happens after thousands come to faith. 
after the church has grown to what we'll just say is probably an unmanageable size for this small group of leadership. But it's here where we get the snapshot. We see the growth, and then we see the snapshot. Like, this is what thousands of people are doing. They've abandoned some other things, and they're fixed on being this, this, this community. And so what's more miraculous? People speaking in odd languages or thousands of people coming together around Jesus, making one another more important than their individual hopes and dreams and goals. You with me? That the miracles sometimes here are embedded in what's being taught. They're clearly emphasizing they had all things in common. They're selling possessions to figure this out. They're, they're caring for one another's needs. We see the emphasis of the passage, but sometimes we think the miraculous is that flashy thing that happened over here and we're missing the truly miraculous here. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This community that's being reshaped by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are centered on Jesus are learning to be about one another, caring for one another. Everybody has what they need, and they, they celebrate that with gladness and generosity. Those who didn't have enough have enough. Those who have plenty share. And they all are, are grateful and glad and celebratory. And so here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say everybody in the sick was healed of all their diseases. It never says that, right? It never says because these people over here gave so much that God made them wealthy right? It's not the prosperity doctrine. It's not the name and claim. It's none of that. Like we don't hear that, oh, God did all these things within the community. He says that they were changed to be about one another and they cared for one another. They began to live distinct and different lives as a community within a community, with a, as a local church within a city. Acts 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, alms is asking for money for people to care for you because you're not able to work. It's like the person we see on a corner with a sign that you know, says, I have this issue, I need help, right? This was the place where those folks would go. But this particular man, everybody knows, he's been crippled from birth. He's never been able to walk since he was born all the way to this. And I think we're told later in the passage, he's like 40 years old. So he's been around this community. He's brought daily to the, to the, to the part of the temple, the gate, where he asks for donations. Verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of, Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Notice who does this, right? Notice who this is. This is Peter and John, two of the apostles, as they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Remember, 
Christianity began as a very Jewish sect of Judaism, right? And so they attended temple. We just read that day by day. They met together in homes. They also attended temple together. So Peter and John are likely going to pray at the temple. And as they go, there's this man who's who's asking for donations because he's crippled and can't walk. Now, I've heard this passage of scripture used all kinds of destructive ways. I've heard it used to say, we don't give money to people. We just do this. Well, I don't see you making people that can't walk, walk. So I'm not sure you're really living this verse out, right? But it's also not saying that when we see people that can't walk, that we're supposed to miraculously heal them either. Like it's not teaching us that. It's not saying this is the prescription. It's saying, here's what happened, right? Peter and John are going to the temple and they see this man who's never been able to walk and he is asking for money and they don't have any, right? Again, there goes the prosperity doctrine, right? But they don't have any to give, but what they do, they, help, they, they tell him to stand up and walk. They grab his arms, he stands up and the man is healed. Now I want, I want to comment on this. We often read a passage like this, and we think this passage is about a healing. Let me just give you a, a just kind of a side note up front. This passage is not about a healing. A healing occurs in this passage, but the focus of this passage is not the healing, right? The focus of this passage is something much greater that this helps support that we'll see as it unfolds, but let's not get lost here. Let's keep seeing, okay, what is our author Luke? What is he telling us as we keep moving? Verse 8. <clears throat> and leaping up, he, the man, stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I want you to imagine that scene for a minute. I think it says 40. Later we'll see that. We'll see if, I'm, if I remember correctly. But he's a grown man. He's been lame all his life. He's never been able to walk. Now he can walk. You can imagine the scene, Right? He is jumping up. He is thrilled. He's a happy guy. Best day of his life, right? As he walks into the temple with Peter and John. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. That's super important. He's not just walking. God is getting the glory. He's praising. He's worshiping God. Verse 10. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were, listen, filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Well, he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, or the, kind of the, the area called Solomon's. It's like Solomon's porch outside the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, meaning he and John, as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? So a guy who begs for money every day is all of a sudden healed. And what happens is it draws a crowd together. Right, This guy who's been lame from birth, as it says, or crippled from birth, who's a grown man who everybody knows because he's seated out here. If you go to temple, you see him. When you go, people have laid him outside so he can ask for donations so that he can live because he can't walk, can't walk or can't work. And so this guy is a known quantity. Everybody knows who this guy is. And so they see him come in with Peter and John, and he's not just walking, but he's leaping, he's jumping, he's worshiping, he's praising it's a sight, and it begins to kind of be the buzz inside the temple, right? If this was today, this would be trending on social media, right? This is the thing. And people are amazed, and it's starting to draw a crowd, and this crowd is starting to draw around this. Now, Peter is seeing this moment where this crowd is gathering in Solomon's portico, which is a, a, a place 
that is really good for a conversation with a crowd. As this crowd is gathering, Peter takes the opportunity as he sees the crowd gathering to proclaim the gospel. So another side note. Some people might see this passage as being a passage about a healing, right? But it isn't. And others like to kind of look at Peter's preached gospel message, which is fairly deep, a pretty robust gospel, and they like to make it about that. Let me suggest to you it's not about that either. That that's not what the emphasis of this passage is. So let's continue. I will say, pretty amazing gospel truths in this, so we want to look at some of them. Verse 13. excuse me, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. If you know the story of the betrayal and trial of Jesus, that at the end of it, Pontius Pilate's like, I see no guilt in this man, right? I'm going to set him free. In fact, you guys have a tradition, you Jews have a tradition that at Passover we let somebody go free. And so you want Jesus, this guy I can't find anything wrong with, or do you want this murderer named Barabbas? And they all shout for Barabbas. So Peter, again, like last week, is a, has a very focused gospel. Like you cried for his death, right? You cried for the death of Jesus. This is what happened. He says, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's a pretty pointed gospel. So Jesus came to you, and you called for his death. In fact, you chose a murderer over him, and you set him to a crucifixion. You had him beaten and killed, but God raised him from the dead, right? Remember what I said, the emphasis of the gospel in Acts, for sure, I would say all of the New Testament, but the emphasis is that Jesus is alive, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead and is alive today that he is God who endured this to reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God. And so we even see Jesus called the author of life, right? Jesus creator God is what he's saying, right? The one who gave life to humanity. We see that in Genesis. We see that in John chapter one, right? Who gave life, you crucified. But God, God the father raised him from the dead and he is alive today. So there's a few key things, right? You killed the author of life. Jesus is God. God raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive. The other one, to this we are witnesses. What were they called to be in Acts chapter 1? Witnesses. Jesus says, wait here until my spirit comes upon you with power. Then you'll be my witnesses. You will tell other people I'm alive. You'll talk about the life, the death, the resurrection that is the gospel, right? That God created humanity and and created us to be in relationship with him. But humanity has sinned and, and gone away from God. And we know that we choose to do wrong things, that we have all fallen away from God, that we've all not just mistakenly fallen away from God, but that we have chosen to disobey God. If you're new here, we say this all the time. If you see somebody who, who attends here regularly, we know we're sinful. We're not pointing at you, we're pointing at us. We know we get it wrong. We know that even knowing better, we choose to do it wrong sometimes. 
But Jesus came to fix that, to reconcile us to God. And Peter and John say, to that we're witnesses. We saw it. He lived, he died, he's alive now. We've seen it. But here's this other one. By faith in Jesus' name, this man is healed. By faith in the living Jesus, this man can walk. I almost said again, he's never walked before. Now see, here's what happens. Why does this passage start out with a miracle if it's not about a miracle? And what he has told us, because the miracle validates the messenger, right? This guy has never walked, now he walks. You're a witness of that. We're a witness of the living Jesus who healed him. Ah, that's why the miracle. God's, or Jesus commissioned his apostles to do things that you and I may not be able to do because they were trying to validate a message. These are the same guys that are going to go on and write scripture. Peter and John both have books that bear their names because they are the authoritative ones that give us the message of Jesus. And in order for this first century culture who has no New Testament Bible, if you will, to know that they are legitimately from God, they have this man stand up and walk. And that validates them as a messenger, but they make sure that they're really quick to say, listen, we didn't make him walk. It's faith in Jesus who lived and died and rose again. You know the one you killed? God raised him from the dead. And it's through faith in his name to that we're witnesses. Right? As they, the church lives out their role, they're being witnesses that Jesus is alive. So now you can see the purpose of the healing. It validates the apostles as the messengers of Jesus. Verse 17. I'm not saying that God won't do a miracle other than that. I'm saying that's the passage of that, that's the point of that miracle in that passage. You with me? God can do whatever God wants to do. This one exists to validate Peter and John as messengers of Jesus. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Christ is the word Messiah or Christ. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. It means the one that God promised in the Old Testament, right? That his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So, repentance is their call to respond, right? Remember last week, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to how similar that is this week. He says, repent and turn back from your sins. That your sins, the first one, that your sins may be blotted out. That's the forgiveness component, right? That your sin may be removed from you. If you repent and believe, you respond to what Jesus has done, your sins are blotted out. The second one, that times of refreshing may come. This newness of life, this promise of God's spirit, that you are given a new life. We say this a lot here, that if Jesus just died for our sins and if he was still in a grave, even if it were true that our sins were forgiven by that, which it couldn't be because he said he would come back to life, but if that's all that happened, and if we were just forgiven, I want you to imagine being just a forgiven version of your broken self. 
You're still trapped in who you are, but it's just not held against you. See, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead, giving you new life. That in, in the spirit, that we have new life, that we can overcome who we were, that we can become new in Christ, right? That we are not defined by our worst decisions, but rather we are defined by Christ's righteousness, by his best decisions. That we are made new. That's the second one. So your sins may be blotted out, times of refreshing may come, and that he may send the, the Christ. He's talking about that you may anticipate the day Jesus returns to restore and renew everything here on earth, right? I am often amazed by Christians who are fearful of the return of Jesus. Like if you're in Christ, you should be anticipating. You're not running towards death. I'm not saying that. You're not praying for the end of the world. I'm just saying that we should, be, we should anticipate, that we should have that security of faith to know that if we're in Christ that that day has nothing for us to fear, right? And that anything that happens between today and that day is in the hands of God, and that we're secure in Christ, that we're here for a purpose. In fact, we're here to be his witnesses. And so we're good. As Paul said, so if I go to be with God, great. If I stay here, there's fruitful ministry to be done. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to stay here is to fulfill my work here on earth. Like Paul's like, I'm good either way. That should be us. So if you believe in Jesus, your response is to repent. Turn from your sin. Place your trust in Jesus, the living Jesus, and allow him to forgive your sins, give you newness of life, and anticipate a day where everything is made right. Peter continues, verse 22. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He's talking about Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus was born. Verse 24. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant of God made with you, and the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, and Abraham has promised his descendant long after him would be Jesus. Right? He wouldn't use the word Jesus, but in his offspring, in, in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's, again, about Jesus. 26, God, having raised up his servant, talking about Jesus, raised him from the dead, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The scriptures all point to Jesus. In Luke 24, the book that Luke writes before this, he closes off with a story of Jesus walking with these two disciples that are still confused. He reveals that he is Jesus to them, that he's alive. That helps put in some puzzle pieces in place. But then it says he walks and talks with them, and he explains how all the law and the prophets are about him, giving them a new way, a new lens by which to see Scripture, that everything finds its fulfillment in Jesus, right? That, that whether it was the incarnation or the sinless life or the substitutionary death, the resurrection, the ascension, the pouring out of the Spirit. We saw that promised in Joel chapter 2. We read about that last week. Whether it's his promised return where he makes everything right, it's all. It's all fulfilled in Jesus, right? Jesus is the only hero of the story. It's never the human beings in the story. It's always Jesus. Peter and John are like, hey, don't look at us. We didn't heal him, Jesus, right? 
So God calls them from, from all the way back in Genesis, which is Abraham, from the first book of the Bible, to trust in Jesus. These, these apostles now proclaiming this message call them to turn from their wickedness or call them to repentance. So what is the focus? So if the focus isn't the healing, we saw that, that's epic, right? We, we love that. But we can get caught up in that, right? But if it's not that, and if it's not Peter's preaching of this pretty phenomenal gospel, and it's theologically deep and robust, we barely scratch the surface of some things in it, it goes much further, much deeper, amazing. We could spend weeks on just this proclaimed gospel message. But if it's not about that, and it's not about this, so if it's not about the miracle, and it's not about the evangelism or the gospel, then what's it about? Well, we're about to read it. You ready? One of you are ready. All right. All right, we're on track today. I hope you guys get more coffee. All right. Acts 4. Ready? Still. Okay. All right. Acts 4. Ready? Oh, my gosh. It was like pulling teeth. All right. Acts 4, verse 1. Ready? And as they were speaking to people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already morning. That's the main point. Did you like it? You're not feeling it? They got arrested. You're not excited? Yeah, maybe I didn't read it well. So, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next, yeah, it doesn't really matter how I say it, does it? Unfortunately, that is the point. Let me say it a different way. This is the first time persecution breaks out against the church. Ah. Now we have an enemy. Now we're on this side of a conversation. Now persecution is breaking out against the church. See, last week we had people that had once called for the death of Jesus who now ask, what must we do to be saved? Oh, well, they're kind of friendly there. And then we see thousands of them come to faith. Some go home. Most remain. This church kind of expands into thousands of people. We see them. They have all kind of, they have everything in common. They're living as if one another are more important than themselves. They're setting aside their hopes of colleges and, you know, all this over here. And they're really living for this, this community called the local church. They're doing all this. And, and then they go out and they're going to pray and they, they heal this man. And, and this man now is, is walking who's never walked before. And, and he walks into the temple with him, and a crowd gathers around that, and Peter preaches the gospel again, and now they're arrested for the gospel. I just want you to, I want you to think about this for a minute. They just gave a man who's a full-grown adult who's never been able to walk, they just helped him walk and got arrested for it. You with me? You see, the message of the gospel is that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. See, that message is so offensive because what we're told is that we can never measure up to God. There's nothing we can do. So God had to come down to us because we're so sinful and so corrupt and so selfish and so idolatrous and, and so evil that we could never fix ourselves. And so God said, you, you, sinful humanity, can never be in my holy God's presence. And so I'm going to have, I'm going to come to you. And the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, put on human flesh to live among us and fulfill the law that we fail and, and live a sinless life and then go die death in our place and suffer and die where we deserve but he does not and be laid in a grave, the author of life, 
That's what we just called him, right? The author of life was laid in a grave. I don't know how that happens. How can the person who gave us life die? Breaks my mind. But he dies so our sin can be forgiven. And then he resurrects from the grave, and this is the offense. So he overcame the people that put him to death. And how do we know that? Because we saw him. We're witnesses. And how do you know that we saw him? Because that guy can walk. And that never happened before. You see, it's not about the miracle. It's not about the preaching, right? It's about the gospel. It's about, the, the, it's about persecution now breaking out on the church for the first time. Luke, our author, is introducing this to us because this is going to shape the trajectory of the passages coming up. It's going to, in two, three chapters, it's going to push them outside of Jerusalem because they're being persecuted. This is the first one, but this is the beginning of living in a world that opposes those of us who are in Christ. That's the point of this passage. How do we know? Let's break it down. Verse 4, but, that's a big but, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So in spite of the arrest, in fact, in, in, inside that, in, in the middle of the arrest, in the middle of persecution breaking out, not before it, after it, the largest conversion yet takes place. About 5,000 people come to faith. So persecution isn't slowing the church down, right? Nothing is changing anything for the church. The gospel message went out. The arrest didn't even slow anything down. Thousands are coming to faith, right? You see, if this passage were about a healing, it would, it would become, and this is what happens in a lot of places, it becomes a how-to manual to do this thing so that this person can get healed, right? We see a lot of that on TV, and then they ask you to send them all their money. I have questions for sure. But then there are really honest folks that read this and just misunderstand that, and they're chasing the miracle. But what happens when you don't get the miracle? What happens when your wife's been chronically ill for 21 years, and no matter how much you pray, it's just still true? What happens if you just can't get to that place, or to, to, if you can't get the health that you want, you desire, you, you really want to be a different, in a different circumstance, but you can't? When you read this to be about a miracle, you're left asking questions about God, and Jesus, and you, but see, so others, so people say, okay, well, it's not about that. It has to be about this gospel, this theologically robust gospel that Peter preaches because 5,000 people come to faith, right? And it is deep. It's a, it's a deep gospel. We could spend some time on it. But then what happens is people then take it, instead of using it as a how-to manual, they take it and they use it as a textbook. And they learn and they try and immerse themselves in the gospel. All good things, by the way. But then they go out to proclaim the gospel in their own strength because they think, I understand this so well, I can articulate this really well, because now how come thousands of people aren't coming to faith? Maybe because you can't control that. Maybe because your words are not enough. But any words inspired by the Holy Spirit are enough. So when we use it this way, we miss the point. When we use it this way, we, we miss the point. We, we can't use it here or here. But when we read it and understand, okay, 
persecution, opposition is breaking out against the church here, then we can kind of contextualize that and say, okay, what happens when not everybody loves the fact that I follow Jesus in my, in my life? What about when my world kind of is going one direction and Jesus is calling me to go this direction? How do I live? How do we live? See, when we expect ourselves to do things that only the apostles could do, we miss the idea of learning what it is that we are called to do. Verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, look at it, filled with the Holy Spirit, not his words, filled with the Holy Spirit. See, it's not his education. You with me? Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he never lets an opportunity go to, you did this, he never misses that opportunity. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. So again, notice what Peter does before he speaks. He's praying for the Spirit speak, right? Notice what's going on. Even under arrest, the Holy Spirit is empowering the gospel. Even under persecution, even under non-optimal circumstances, the gospel is empowered by the Spirit to go out. Even under persecution, the church can be an effective witness for Christ. Even when the world is against us and people oppose us, the Holy Spirit still empowers us to proclaim Christ alive. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which have become the cornerstone, which rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there are no other name under heaven given among men, which we must be saved, by which we must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, look at that word boldness. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You see, the religious leaders would love to dismiss Peter and John. But you've basically got two guys who were fishermen for a vocation, who have no formal education now, laying down a gospel that is amazing and powerful. And if that's not enough, standing next to a guy who's never walked before, who's like jumping up and down, like, look, worshiping and glorifying God. And they're saying, listen, it's proof that Jesus is alive. Even the people recognize, like, they're simple dudes. Like, why, why is their message so good? Oh, they were with Jesus. And they're all putting these pieces back together. Again, what's more miraculous, that this guy is standing there or that these guys are, are proclaiming the truths of all the Old Testament scriptures empowered by the Spirit, and thousands are coming to faith. Right? Like, the miraculous isn't always just the flashy. Right? And in fact, I would say 99% of the time it's not this, it's subtle. But it's just as miraculous, if not more miraculous. You see, the guy who's walking is going to die one day. A lot of good that does right? Granted, better second half of his life for sure. 
But if he dies and is separated from God for an eternity, does that matter? Then why do we get caught up here? When we would rather see an eternal solution. For the Spirit-empowered church today, people can ignore words, but they cannot ignore a transformed life. They cannot ignore a life that is transformed by the Spirit of God, that is fixed, eyes on Jesus, with one singular mission in life, to make the living Jesus known in his or her community. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do to these men? So the religious leaders asked, like, hey, what do we do about this? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that this may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I knew I saw 40 somewhere. He's older than 40 and never walked. And they can't shake that one fact that they can't get around, that there's a changed life in their midst that everybody is seeing and praising God for. And so they threaten Peter and John, like, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they're like, listen, we're accountable to God. To listen to you or to listen to God? And we're going to go with God. You know the God who raised him from the dead? Mm, we're going to do that. Because if you kill us, he can do that. Amen. Right? Because your thing is temporary and his thing's eternal. And we've seen Jesus live, die, and raise from the dead. He's alive today. Like, we're going with that. So they threaten him, but they can't figure out how to punish them because there's an obvious changed life in this man. And they can't get around it. And if they do anything else, they're going to be found on the other side of the people who are now praising God because of them. Even under opposition, the Holy Spirit empowers us to share the gospel. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So what do they do? They run back to the local church to tell their friends. Like when, when hard things or good things, when things happen, are you eager to come back to church and share this with your community of faith? That's where they go, straight to them. Like they go straight back to that. To share with them both the struggle and the good news. To share what God has done. And look what happens. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said. Now they're either singing part of this or praying all of it. But they sing a little bit maybe in the front. Pray a little bit in the back. But it says they lift their voices together to God and says, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 25. Who through the mouth of your father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Against the Lord, meaning God, and against his anointed, meaning Jesus. Know that their prayer or their worship reveals scripture as promising persecution to God's people. Right? They recognize that scripture's always said this. Not only did it proclaim Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that he would suffer, but it teaches that we will that we will endure, that we will suffer for the sake of the kingdom, or easier said, we will suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. 
that if we are truly following Jesus, people will not like that. There will be people, and especially if we continue to live a life around those who don't believe in Jesus, which I hope we do. We want to see the message of the gospel go out. It means we've got to be around people that don't know Jesus. And some will be pushed away and some will be drawn in. We can't control who that is. That, again, is a work of the Spirit. But we can be ready to do that. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, God, you put this in place. You sovereignly chose this. Not only were you sovereign and, and chose how the gospel would occur, what would go on, that Jesus would come and live a life that we choose not to live, and he would die death in our place, that he would raise from the grave, that he would be alive today. Not only did you choose that, but you also chose our circumstances, that you set them in place so that we could be the witness here in our community, whether that's this church in Jerusalem or our church here in Cerritos and kind of the greater Long Beach, this side of Orange County, whatever it is that God sovereignly places some of these things in our way that we might be a light to the world around us. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Remember I said that earlier? Note the word boldness. Well, you stretch out your hand to heal and signed and wonders are performed through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. Lord, look on their threats, listen to this line, and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What does the early church pray for when persecution strikes? Boldness. That they would continue to be brave enough to proclaim Jesus to a world that wants them to shut up. That they would teach and speak the truth in ways that are loving and winsome, but true in a world that doesn't want to hear it. God, give us boldness. Notice what they don't pray for. They're not praying for the healing of all their people. They're not praying for prosperity. They're not praying for to be smarter. They're praying for boldness that the Spirit will continue to speak through them in a hostile world. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, wait a minute. Weren't they filled with the Holy Spirit last week? Did it leak out? Oh, good. See, the church is filled with the Spirit. They speak and others come to faith. And then what are they told to do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so that you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that happens. And, and the church continues to grow. And then persecution strikes and they come back and the church gathers again and the Holy Spirit falls upon them again. Why? New task at hand to empower them right? Persecution is going to come on the church now, and the Holy Spirit is doing a new thing in a new way through them and in them and for them. It's not that the Holy Spirit went away. The Holy Spirit's doing this. The Holy Spirit does more than one thing, Amen. and they're about to enter into a new season, a new phase, and they need the Holy Spirit in a new way, and they need to know like God is with them every step. And not only does he equip them for what lies in front of them, but he shakes the room a little bit to make sure they're not sleeping. Like, you got this, right? You understand what's going on here. It says, and when they had prayed, note the church gathered together praying again. And just ask yourself, you, you, you determine this. 
How frequently do you do that? How awkward is our prayer time after our second song when we pray? When we gather for Selah on the fourth Sunday of each month, do you join us in corporate prayer? This is where God is doing things. It was the 120 gathered where the Spirit fell upon them. They were praying, right? And then it continues to go. They devote themselves, the apostles preaching to the doctrine, if you will, to fellowship, to being a community, to the breaking of bread, meals and communion, and to prayer. And then everything hits the fan over here, and they gather again, and they worship and pray. And again, when they're gathered and worshiping and praying, while they're praying, the Holy Spirit falls on them in a new way, in a fresh way, to equip them to the task that's coming. Where is our prayer life as a church? Not just at home, as a church. Because we're called to be together, to pray together to be a community that is devoted to these things. So what are some applications to take from this? The church, empowered by the Spirit, lives with one another in new ways. One another and the mission of Jesus become more important than the individual. Right? Then all the hopes and dreams, all that I want to own a house, all that I want to go to this college, all that I got this idea, all of it comes secondary to the mission of gospel and the, and the one another's. Right? The church empowered by the Spirit gathers and prays and devotes themselves to being a prayer, a praying community, a prayerful community. The church empowered by the Spirit spreads throughout their community, throughout Jerusalem. Is our community being impacted by us? The church empowered by the Holy Spirit expands under persecution, not declines, expands under persecution. Now, none of us want persecution but we definitely want to see the gospel expand. If God has persecution set for us to accomplish that end, we have to be okay with that better. That we would be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. The church empowered by the Spirit gathers and prays for boldness. May we be bold enough when that time comes. So what applications will you make today? What, what is your takeaway? That's the question we always ask. Consider the following categories. For me, I want to pray and seek God to spread out into our community more. I want to see God move out into our community more. And I want to be a part of that. I want us to be a part of that. For those who've been walking with Jesus for some time, have you taught those around you that life is less about the future temporary goals they have and more about his kingdom coming and living in that kingdom today? For those of you that are new to the gospel, new believers, you will endure opposition and possibly persecution for your faith. You will have people that disagree with you, some very verbally. Some who will disown you, some who will reject you because of your beliefs. Some who will mock you, maybe. In the right circumstances, even persecution, possibly. That's okay. For those of you that are not followers of Jesus, the gospel is about a living Jesus who empowers people to live in a new way. We call that transformation, that we are, we are people empowered to be changed, to be transformed. That new way is often imperfect and hard, but it is way better than life without Jesus. That new way we're not perfect at, so please understand we're flawed, but it is better with Jesus. Parents, do you teach your kids that a life empowered by the Holy Spirit lives more for one another than it does for future, than it does for goals and plans and dreams, but that rather Jesus becomes central and one another in the community, in the church community, in the local church, become a big piece of the puzzle 
No matter what life has for you, do you teach your kids that a life empowered by the Holy Spirit is kingdom-focused? Let's take two, three, four minutes. Gather with somebody, your family around you maybe, or maybe if there's somebody sitting next to you, please make sure no one is left out. And let's take two, three minutes. What is your takeaway? Share your takeaway with those around you, please.